This is the Meiji at 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. Today I'm talking with Annette Skovsted Hansen, Associate Professor in the School of Culture and Society at Aarhus University. Dr. Hansen is the author of Practicing Kokugo, Teachers in Hokkaido and Okinawa Classrooms, 1895 to 1904, published in volume 40 of the Journal of Japanese Studies in August 2014. Dr. Hansen, thank you so much for talking with me today. Well, thank you for inviting me. So in your research, you've looked at the formation of kokugo in the Meiji period, as well as the role of teachers and dictionaries in the formation of this national language. So could you tell us about what's happening in the Meiji period in regards to kokugo and national language? Well, the sort of significant change compared to the bakumatsu or the the late tokugawa was that there was a change in terms of, of policy and education reform, or more specifically education reform, in that many or most Japanese people may have attended some kind of schooling, but that there had to be sort of a state school system for all students or all children in Japan. And for that purpose, just like in many other countries, they were lacking a language that was sort of suitable for teaching or educating the populace to become uh, citizens of a modern nation state. And the reason was that the languages that had been used earlier wasn't really uh, chosen for clarity, for example. Uh, One of the issues around language earlier had been that it was actually a positive thing if it was difficult or if it was varied and diverse and so on and so forth, whereas a nation-state school system needs one correct language that teachers can correct or tell students how they're supposed to do it, and, and of course, also then uh, underline mistakes. And in order to be able to do that, language teaching becomes prescriptive, and they need to agree throughout the country, or somebody has to agree, so it might also be the state, of course, or the government, that has to choose what language then is it that should be the school language of any new nation state. And in the case of Japan, one of the challenges was several different types of written languages, sorobun or kanbun and so on and so forth, that had sort of different functions, but it also had to do with different languages being, or different I usually don't uh, like to use the word dialect, so I always call them local languages in terms of uh, different ways of pronunciation, maybe also different types of grammar. We have that in Denmark as well as in Japan, so it's not unique to Japan. But the challenge of the school system is that all of a sudden there has to be one way that's correct. And therefore, there was an attempt, mostly after 1872, but also before that, to try and figure out what language should it then be, and halfway at least create one. And also, there had been kokugaku before, and that's also why I'm saying that this was also building, like most things in history, on incremental changes of something that had been before. So with Motori Norinaga and others of the kokugaku school, there had been attention also to focus on a Japanese language prior to Chinese influence, or at least something that was then associated with a Japan from before influence from China. And that could be used as the mainstay, or ended up being one of some of the classics or the canon of the school system later, uh, to try and recover some of these, these texts. 
but also to write new texts because the purpose of the new education system was, as I mentioned, to create citizens, but it was these citizens were supposed to be able to engage in politics in their country, but also be informed citizens about whatever the government or others thought they should know about, as well as being able to read manuals and become laborers but, but or factory workers or other professions, but where they needed to be able to read and understand information. So, so in that sense, it was very much tied in with this idea of a new modern nation state. And then, of course, we can talk about, I mean, to what extent it happened or when it happened, because obviously there was no or very little agreement in 1872. And it was a process that took at least 30 years, some ways longer, to try and define what then would be the school language in Japan. Can you talk a bit more about that process and specifically who are the actors who are carrying out this process? Is, is it something that's imposed from above by, say, oligarchs in the Meiji state? Is there more local activities by local actors? Is it some kind of compromise and negotiation between these two levels? Can you tell us or elaborate a bit more on that process? Yeah, there were a number of different, we could say, groups of actors there were definitely oligarchs, some that were interested in this topic and others that were not. But it was also even within the ranks of the intellectuals, or they, they, were, they were not in agreement. Some, like Nishiyamane, at least proposed that they should just skip Japanese altogether and go straight to English and teach that in the schools, because then, as he calculated it over 10 years, then everybody would just be speaking and writing English, and that, that would solve a lot of international communication issues. And there were also Roma Jikai taking over just the Latin alphabet, but still writing Japanese, or writing solely in kana, or writing solely in kanji. And these were often either uh, philosophers of various kinds, or fiction writers, poets, and journalists. And they all experimented. So there was not one, I, I would say that few would have, or it, it, nobody would have been able to predict in 1872 where the language was going to end. I mean, I would argue that in 1872, it was very unclear who would get the last say in terms of what the language would look like 30 years later, the school language. And so it was intellectuals like Fukutao Yukichi, also edu educators, but practitioners in terms of Write, they themselves were doing writing to try and explain or to try and show how this new language could be. And for example, so Yukichi was, became famous for a statement where he said, well, everything I write, I have my maid read before. So if she understands what I'm writing, then it's good enough, then I can publish it. So that was one. Then the article you were referring to, I was focusing on the educators, because of course, when there was then some kind of textbooks or some agreement, or even though it was still being negotiated, but at least there were textbooks, there were things that were being read in schools, and the teachers had to correct their students' papers. The educators in the classroom, of course, also had an influence on how this language was then being interpreted and how it was shaped over time. So they also played a role. And then there was the dictionaries where they as I usually argue, sort of made uh, language tangible in the sense that you could hold this otherwise very intangible thing, language, in your hand in the dictionary. And then the dictionary would there you could look up words and see what they meant. So it became the dictionary sort of became the last word. I almost said no, but I mean, that that was the, the place where you could then see if something was correctly spelled. 
uh, or the correct kanji and so on. So, so the dictionary makers were also from different professions uh, and got involved. I mean, many of them were linguists of various kinds and had studied usually foreign languages as well, but they got into lexicography, the making of dictionaries, and were also, you could say, competing or arguing these various publishers and the various dictionaries on who then did the correct spelling and who, who got to be the authorized dictionary of Kokugo, of the language of the nation. You mentioned that there were a myriad of local languages around Japan at the time. And I mean, obviously, the, the oligarchs in the Meiji government were, of course, from places like Satsuma and Choshu that have a very distinct dialect of their own. Yet the language that emerges as Kokugo, the national language of Japan, is really based on Tokyo, if I'm if I'm not mistaken. So how is it, why is it that Tokyo local language gets adopted? Is it simply because it's the capital or, or what else? Is, is there more to it than that? Well, the argument by many who wrote before me also was that, yes, it was some kind of Tokyo go, but certainly not, not Edoko. And it was certainly more a Yamanote area language. And it has been argued now, I'm not a linguist, but some people have found patterns where they're showing how it was very much a Kyotsugo or a mixed language, a, a language of use in that area, which meant that because of the Sankinkotai system, that was actually a language that was already taking in, in or had been for, for centuries, been taken in uh, or in mixing different sort of strands from different local languages throughout the country. So going back to the textbooks in places like Hokkaido and, and Okinawa, which I know you've written about, as you're talking about, language is instrumental in this formation of, say, the modern subject of, of the nation state because it kind of homogenizes people. And, and that's certainly something that would have been seen as useful in cases such as Hokkaido and Okinawa, right? Right. And I think also what was special about those two areas was that in the case of Hokkaido, of course, it was an Ainu population, but there were also a lot of people who had moved to Hokkaido from, or were moving over these 30 years, uh, were moving from Tokyo and other places in on Honshu or Kyushu even, or Shikoku, and moved up to Hokkaido. So many have actually said that if anything, then the standard language, as it's also called the Hyojungo, was maybe even the most... Um, clear or standardized in Hokkaido. That is, of course, not including Ainu languages or, or the consideration of the Ainu specifically, but they also attended many of these schools and were taught this school language. That, to me, at least, is also one of these really interesting things about an epic moment like Meiji, that we think of it as being something that where, where the world changes or Japan changes drastically. But actually, Already in 1799, the Tokugawa Shogun had insisted that Ainu should learn Japanese and wear Japanese clothes to signify that they were in fact Japanese and not Russian. So it was sort of already then a national geopolitical strategy to make sure that this group of people outwardly seemed to be Japanese and therefore the island of Hokkaido was legitimately Japanese. Then this this policy sort of was reversed again, and it was again Matsumaya, the, the local 
uh, daimyo who decided, and he he was very much, or his family was insistent on that the Ainu should not learn Japanese, that it was actually illegal to look like Japanese or talk Japanese. So this whole, within a couple of generations, the Ainu population in Hokkaido, at least a large part of it, had experienced this back and forth, whether they were allowed to or had to or not. And so, so their relationship to the Japanese language was also kind of very, very uh, I don't know, not necessarily problematic, but but certainly confusing in in some ways. And that was then with with 1868. I mean, they, it, there was again an insistence that they should learn Japanese. And that was the language of the school. And then the dictionaries are vital in that, of course. Yeah, well, there were also bilingual dictionaries, and they actually predated, for for many cases, in in many cases anyway, the monolingual, so the, the Kokugo dictionaries. So, I mean, basically, what what I usually talk about or write about is that previous dictionaries that only were sort of Japanese language was very much the historical difference. So there were dictionaries to learn or to be able to read classical Japanese texts. Whereas with the Kokugo dictionaries, with the Meiji period, it becomes a question of having a book on the present language, the, the language that's being, being spoken at the time. And you said there are bilingual dictionaries. Is that classical Japanese and Kokugo or, or is that Japanese and Ainu language? Yeah, the Japanese and Ainu, for example, or Japanese and English, Japanese and German, Japanese and French. I mean, many different languages. Who's putting together the Ainu dictionary? There's Japanese linguists going into places like Hokkaido and transcribing Ainu language? There are some, yes. And then there are also or anthropologists of various kinds, and both Japanese, but also very much Christian missionaries, British or mostly British, but, but also some from other countries that would go in and make actually first an Ainu English dictionary, for example. So I know you've also recently talked about the lessons of the Meiji Restoration. You gave a conference paper, for example. Could you tell us, from your perspective, what are the lessons of the Meiji Restoration, considering this is the 150th anniversary and, and even next year being the 150th anniversary of Hokkaido? Right. Well, I think, I mean, the, the purpose of that paper was actually, I was invited to a conference where they were discussing sort of lessons of the Meiji period that could be somehow replicated or should be a, sort of an idea of a new Meiji that we're not necessarily returning to a Meiji, but there were there was some issues around or some idea that the Meiji period stood for a lot of positive things. I mean, that there, there would be a reason that Japan, Japanese politicians were invited to the conference and others. I mean, that, that they would be interested in somehow creating a Japan today that was more like Japan in the Meiji period. And I was discussing that because, in my view, the historical context and not least Japan and Japan's status or experience in the world since Meiji until now means that that, that in itself would offset most potential similarities. But I think that one of the things that they were trying to get at was probably sort of Japan as a success. And that, of course, gets back to the question of how we write history and how a national history is being written. And in the in the history of Japan, of course, there are many, but, but nevertheless, I think one of the strands is certainly that the Meiji Restoration was a time where Japan became part of a global history, that Japan did so very successfully because they some, Japan somehow lived up some, to expectations both from the outside, but also from inside Japan, so that they could compete, so they could 
do as other countries and succeed with the measures that were sort of set up, that they became bigger, that they uh, engaged in wars, they won, that their economy um, increased and or economic growth was central to this period, industrialization. There were various measures that would be what they were looking for and seeing, well, what could Japan do today to again become sort of a model for its Asian neighbors, maybe even also other countries throughout the world. But the thing is, Japan is already one of the largest economies in the world. And and there's been so many things going on in the meantime that I, I think that that to then ignore the fact that Japan did that uh, through military, well, both military industry and military uh, actions or wars and so on and so forth. And that was basically what was being done. It was not, they were not arguing, well, Japan should go to war now because then they will have a stronger economy. And then, you know, so, so it becomes, it comes a little difficult, I think. But what's interesting to me is within the framework of uses of history is this positive notion, this, this focus on the major period as the positive period. Because otherwise, people today would not necessarily look back and say, oh, let's repeat this or see how much of this we can repeat. And that I find fascinating also for the whole year, because, of course, there's things to to celebrate. It is certainly a significant year also for historians, not least or for me as an historian, because it, it has this epic moment character. I mean, it's it, it's even though much of what happened, certainly in 1868, had already been going on in various ways up till that point. And, and many things like, for example, in terms of language and schools was not going to be in place till 30 years later. So it is this experience of a particular date, a particular time where the story sort of gets its turning point when we tell the story of Japanese history. Ask this question a lot of a lot of my guests about do we make too much of the year 1868? So maybe I'll rephrase the question a bit and say you know, we we do tend to fetishize dates perhaps too much as historians, but as you as you just said, it, you know it, it's it can be a useful moment to remember some of the problematic aspects. Anniversaries don't necessarily have to be celebratory; they can they can also be moments to reflect. So when we reflect on the Meiji period and maybe some of the more negative aspects, could you talk more about what are the things that should be highlighted more as counter to this narrative of the Meiji success story? Hmm, That is a very good question and becomes quite a bit more challenging because I'm not necessarily arguing that it's all negative either. And I guess that's also what you're asking about. But I think it's, it's a fascinating moment in terms of global history because I think it's a time where more Japanese recognize or aspire for Japan to be part of this larger picture. I mean, it's not that Japan has not been part of, sort of it anyway, but with certain uh, hesitations, the Chinese world order and so on and so forth. But but it's sort of, it's it's a time where they embark on a new way of relating to the rest of the world and a much larger part of the rest of the world. And I think that there are patterns in the way in which they do that, which are fascinating and which is actually one of the things that I work on when I, my, my current research project on Japanese 
uh, foreign aid or overseas development assistance, where I focus on overseas training or scholarships. And what I mean by that is both JICA, uh, the Japanese International Corporation Agency, and the METI or uh, an association or under METI or partly financed by METI, which is called Association of Overseas Technical Scholarships, they have actually since the late 1950s invited very well-educated professionals from throughout the world to Japan to follow various training courses. And then afterwards, these people return to their countries throughout the world and they bring something home. And that's what I find curious about what I find interesting is to see what is it they bring home, because sometimes, of course, it's the content of the course, but it could also be observations that they have made on the street or somewhere in Japan that they bring home and try to emulate or at least adapt or something to their own home environment. It could be literally in their homes, but it could also be at their workplaces or in their local communities. And when I talk to people, for example, in JICA, they will often say, oh, but you should read about the Iwakura mission because that is what we're doing, right? So basically what they're saying is that even if you could argue that, well, maybe the similarities are also, they're not, you know, identical or so many, but nevertheless, the argument is that this thing about sending people out to study or to observe what is going on elsewhere in the world and then bring, they sort of pick out what they find to be the most interesting or most adaptable or most appropriate for their home environment. And then they bring it home as opposed to in, in foreign aid uh, environment, it's often also has been experts that were sent, sent out to places to teach or to tell people what to do. I'm being a little uh, strong there, but in any case, then this idea of actually having people from throughout the world watch you or observe in your country and choose for themselves what they're bringing home. You might try and guide them, but nevertheless, you have no full control over it, what they bring home. That actually gives a lot of agency to the people who then come from these various typically developing countries, but also Eastern Europe and other places. And and that, I think, is is a worthwhile lesson. To what extent it's it's actually a duplicate from the Meiji period is a difficult one, but nevertheless, that is what JICA officials, for example, would they will make that uh, storyline or that narrative. And so I think that sort of the observations and the selection of what to, to use and at least moderate control over what, what then is being selected. Uh, in Japan at the po- moment in, in the Meiji period. It's fascinating that they were so self-consciously referring back to the Meiji yeah. period. Yeah. Is there other connections we can make, so, such as this kind of state-driven economic development, or, or maybe even the use of history in the form of this Meiji at 150 as perhaps a kind of soft power? Is this something that Japan is also doing through its ODA. Yeah, uh, very much so. And that's actually, that is just as much the, the the professionals coming from other countries. They, if I ask them, for example, what, why Japan and not, not Europe or a European country or the US, right? USAID, uh, various countries in Europe, the EU, they also offer courses, right? And sometimes, of course, it's a complete coincidence that they end up in Japan and not... Uh, Denmark or the US. And sometimes they do both. But very often the argument from, for example, Ghanaians or Tanzanians or Indians or from very, or from other countries, Vietnamese, Thai, they will say, well, it's because Japan 
accomplished what we want to accomplish in the sense that they became competitive on the economic terms in the sort of modern technology and so on and so forth, but they kept their culture. They did not compromise on their culture. Now, I mean, I could argue that that is a complete, or at least to a very large extent, a very interesting uh, observation, but not necessarily a very true one in the sense that young Japanese people also need to take classes in Ikebana. It's not necessarily something they learn at home and tea ceremony and so on and so forth. But nevertheless, the, the, the mindset of the people arriving in Japan, they many of them will be looking at the fast-moving trains that are very punctual, but they will also be identifying this, what they then refer to as traditional Japanese culture, which has survived and which the Japanese have, have actively and successfully preserved in spite of all these changes. Whereas when they refer to Europe, it's like, well, Europe has no culture, right? They, they gave it all up for modernity. And, and that, so, so that's um, another thing that I, as I said, I'm not sure that that can really be proven one way or another, that this tradition is stronger in Japan than, than other traditional traditions or whatever we can call it, even as, as uh, historians, but in the, in the popular speak and in the way that people are narrating why they pick Japan over Germany or Denmark or the U.S., that is a very strong story. Yeah, that's fascinating, too. I mean, I, mean, I was thinking about the same thing about th this question of how much has Japan retained of its tradition in, in within this onslaught of you know modernization or westernization. But I guess maybe it's that's, that's the image that's being projected around the world as well. Mm -hmm. And now, of course, soft power is also newer versions of that. Yeah, both both completely new culture, whether it's robotics or or um, or various kinds of manga that are not about traditional topics of Japan, but they are also included. They are also including these more, I mean, topics that we associate with with uh, earlier historical periods in Japan. So then, the funding that Japan sends around the world for ODA is this. This is also meant as a way to create goodwill for Japan? Oh, absolutely. But so is ODA. That is the whole, you know, I'm sorry. I mean, I know this program is about Japan, but I have to say that when I have to agree with you on that, yes, this is all about soft power and goodwill, that's also Danish aid and US aid and everything. Uh, ODA or foreign aid is a very powerful and very what can I say, um, very safe way of creating networks, economic ties, trade relationships, routes for foreign direct investment. All these things are very much sort of part of the whole or, or, or about strategies as well as policies around ODA throughout the world. And that's also why we see India for India or China, where many countries, Vietnam, uh, Thai, Thailand being both, right? Uh, up to a point, and then they become only or primarily so-called donors. But for quite a number of years, they will typically be both because there is power in and goodwill and so on and so forth in relating to other countries by giving aid. I've been discussing this with, with a lot of other guests is how does the 150th anniversary of Meiji differ from, say, the 100th anniversary in 1968 or even the 125th? And the more people I talk to, it, it seems to be coming down to this overlap between the kind of projection around the rest of the world of Japan as being the one who successfully modernizes while retaining its tradition, conflated with ODA. 
And so let's let's revisit the Meiji period, look at the industrial success and the economic development of the Meiji period. And we can use that as a selling point to everybody else in the world who will hopefully then look to Japan for assistance. Right. But I'm not sure that I think it's so... I mean, certain things are obviously very different from 1868, no, from 1968 or 25 years later. But I think that the story about the tradition and and the techno- modern technology going hand in hand or somehow being being balanced in Japan and its aid and Japan in general, that I can certainly see in newsletters already dating back to the 1950s and 60s. Um, so I think that I would argue has been fairly consistent. I um, and also the people I interview, the alumni of these courses, also some of them went in the sixties or the seventies. Um, went sorry, went or took the courses in Japan in the nineteen sixties or seventies, eighties. I think hmm, maybe maybe it's maybe to some extent what's different now. But I'm not sure. Yeah, no, I'm really not sure. Because I think one of the things that comes to my mind is that there's sort of a sense of being at a turning point. But I'm just not sure whether they also felt that 25 years ago. I mean, that could certainly be argued. But I think part of what's what what's then the turning point now is that um, not least the neighbors, the immediate East uh, Asian neighbors, but also many of the other Asian countries have really changed a lot. So their immediate sort of surroundings, uh, geopolitical surroundings, are, are there that Japan is no longer the, um, the absolute strongest, the, the only possible um, country to look up to, so to speak. So I think actually, if anything, then the competitor is now the obvious is China, but actually also South Korea or Thailand or Vietnam. I mean, there are certain areas where Japan is up against new possible models for emulating by developing countries, as long as there are even any of those left, right? I'm not talking about the future because I'm an historian, but nevertheless, it's, it's, um, I, I think that that might actually be one of the things that is also actually very different from from 1868 i mean that that japan somehow is is now challenged by others who can do the same or more or better than japan at least potentially and therefore japan has to sort of or is trying or japan who's japan but i mean many politicians and others in japan will try to figure out what was it in the Meiji period that made us stand out uh, from the other Asian countries at that time, uh, principally, but but now also, of course, countries on other continents as well. But in this, in the relations to Europe or to to the U.S., and also, of course, there are others to relate to now, or or w- which are other countries that are very important to relate to at this point in history. The Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.